Hi, I'm Karen Osborne, and this is Living in the Sandwich Zone, a place where each week we talk all things parenting, caregiving, juggling life, and reclaiming joy. Hi, welcome back to Living in the Sandwich Zone and part two of my conversation with Joelle Danahy. Growing up in elementary school, we used to have what we called drop drills. During a drop drill, we students would be trained and have practice in quickly going under our desks, covering our head with our hands, and staying there until the all clear was given. And that was the practice that we would go through to prepare for an earthquake or other natural disaster. It was a drop drill. Today, our kids have active shooter training. It is something that a parent dreads ever happening at their child's school. For my friend Joelle, this terrorizing reality happened November 14th, 2019 when at her son's high school, Saugus High School in California, a student came to campus with a gun, shooting and killing two of his classmates, wounding three others, and then killing himself. In the wake of these unrelenting massacres that we have experienced in the United States in just the last month, it's something that I pray I will never have to go through as a parent, yet I feel like I need to prepare for because it's almost like these shootings are getting to be commonplace. In this episode, we are talking about gun violence and in particular, Joelle's firsthand experience as a parent who's had to live through the terror and the trauma of a school shooting at her child's high school. In this segment, Joelle shares more about what happened that day and what that experience was like for her as a parent. We also talk about so much more about what's happening in the world and Joelle shares really her resilience through it all. We talk about how this tragedy has impacted her son and the support and resources that she found for him. Resources for ourselves. We talk about listening to our kids. We touch on our parents and caregiving for them. There's just a lot we cover. So take a listen. And I hope that our conversation touches you as much as it touched me. Here is part two of my conversation with Joelle Danahy. What's been happening is just horrific and sad. And as a parent, that's the helpless piece. Like I can't, I can't help. What can I do to stop this from happening? Um, My own experience as a parent that morning, um, we heard, I heard the sirens. I live across the street from the high school. Wow. I live across the street, but of the backside of the high school. So I heard all of the sirens and it was excessive. It sounded at the time. I'm like, wow, there must be a big accident. And then 
Turns out it wasn't excessive. They needed all the sirens. Uh, And then the helicopter showed up and the news camera showed up and they were hovering over my house. So at what point was the first point that you found out that there had been a shooting on your kid's campus? I want to say it was via text and it was, uh, I want to say it was the school. It was not my son. Mm-hmm. Um, it was either via text or social media and it was probably social media. I, I'm going to take that back. It was social media because we heard all the sirens and we heard the hell we started to hear the helicopters. And so immediately like many communities, we have a, you know, emergency lights and sirens page on Facebook, like what's mm-hmm. happening. And then that's where it was contact. Uh, something's happening at Saugus high school lockdown. So at that point, I saw that something was happening. Then I got a text from the school district. We've locked down the campus, but they didn't spe- specify what was happening because they didn't know. And um, that's when I reached out to Edwin. So from the Did time you get I an immediate response, no, oh, but it wasn't long. It was about five or six minutes, but it was the longest five or six minutes uh, in in a long time. Um, I got a message immediately, and then my phone started blowing up um, with friends and family seeing it on the news. And so then I put on social media: Edwin is alive. And he is locked in a classroom trying to, because at that point I'm focusing on what's happening and I can't answer all of the questions from everybody coming in. Um, Neighbors and friends showed up at my house. We all watched the news. It was horrific to watch. Um, And in the meantime, I was able to communicate with Edwin and I'll tell you why I was able to communicate with Edwin because he had his phone on him, on his person. I am a huge advocate of teachers, Karen, and I know that teachers in the past have had these rules like put your phone by the door because we don't want them interrupting our um, lesson plan. And I get that. Yep. But I will never. And now my kid is grown and out of high school. But if he were younger, if I had younger kids, I my instructions to my children would be never give up your phone. Mm. Always have your phone on your person, put it in your backpack next to you even, but, and be respectful. I think we need to, I really do think we need to teach phone etiquette in the classroom, as opposed to, we're just going to take your phones away. Um, The other piece of information that relates to the phones is that there are a lot of kids who have their phones in those containers by the door who were not allowed to access their phones. Most parents didn't know if their children were alive. So imagine, I can't um, even imagine that to me, those hours. And and that's where my heart for the Uvalde parents um, just breaks. And unlike you, I am not able to watch any of the footage uh, from, from these recent shootings. I'm it's too triggering for, for PTSD for me. And what's interesting is I can't watch it either. I read stuff and I was listening to the accounts, but I've had to unplug from the news because my nervous system can't handle it. It's, it's very true. Um, 
and I want to get to that because there's a piece of information and a piece of advice that was given to us parents um, by Dr. David Schoenfeld. And he is a, he's a pediatrician. He's out of the Keck School of Medicine and he runs the National Center for School Crisis and Bereavement. It's mm-hmm. at schoolcrisiscenter.org. And he goes and he's, he has the unlucky and unfortunate job of speaking at campuses and other places where there have been mass shootings, specifically of children, where children have been affected. And he's very busy, unfortunately. So one of the pieces of advice he gave to us parents was turn off your phones. Don't watch the news. If something big happens, you're going to know. Yeah. Someone will tell you. Someone will tell you. And I did that. I turned off my phone or I turned off, you know, social media and Twitter. And I just, I didn't go to it and I didn't watch the news. And then when big things would happen, I would get a text from a friend. I'm like, okay, so you don't need to tap in a hundred percent to the news is my point. And that was his suggestion. I tell you, I feel like I've been doing that for three years now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Because I, and I recognized it first with sleeplessness at night yeah. that I could not have any type of newsfeed on digital TV, yep. whatever, because it was just like immersing my brain in repetitive trauma and yeah. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't rest. And so I stopped watching at night and then I have kind of stopped watching altogether. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't, I'm, here, you know, open myself for vast criticism. I don't read the news. I don't, I don't watch the news. You know, when I go to my parents, they often have it on. And oftentimes I'm like, can we turn it to something else? Um, Or can I come back later? Because my nervous system is just so constricted and tense and and activated right now that I can't withstand it. I can't. And that's a choice. That is my self-care choice to not immerse myself in that input. It's like, you know, it's like dieting, right? You Mm -hmm. choose what you allow in and Mm -hmm. what you're going to resist. And that's one of the resistance things for me. So I think it's a definitely uh, a self-care for sure. Like Edwin described it as feeling like he had a sunburn. Mm. And he was just too sensitive to more input. And so he had to back away. Now, after that day, um, when we were fully, when we were reunited and, and I have to give the school district some credit, they, they worked really hard to, um, to inform the parents on what the procedure was going to be and how we were to pick up our kids, um, and, and I think ultimately they did a good job about that. Uh, our situation was different than Uvalde because it was over in 45 seconds at the time. No one knew it was over right. at the time. They were still looking for other shooters, but looking back, we knew it was, it was over. And when you, you mentioned something like when they gave her back to me in, in the ambulance, right. I knew everything was okay. So when they started evacuating the kids off of the campus and to the park across the street where we were supposed to pick our kids up, I knew everything's okay. It wasn't okay yet, but 
you know, just that little sign of, well, they're evacuating. So there's no more shooting left. Like right. we can get our kids now. Um, my son was very vocal. We had, um, he and I had both marched uh, in March for our lives, the previous March uh, after the Parkland shooting. So he wanted to speak to the press mm-hmm. and I let him. Um, and he was on the national news. Uh, and I was proud of him uh, for saying something. And, you know, they truncated his thing, but his whole, his whole message was, we're dying. Do something. Politicians, you need to do something. We're dying. Uh, this is, this is the hard part, Joelle. This is the hard part for me because that rage that I talked about. Yes. We are failing our kids. Yes. We are failing our, our kids so catastrophically to allow this. And, you know, as, as I was riding the waves of all the swells of the various emotions that I have been feeling, And even just sitting with you now, even though I knew this was coming, this conversation, I cannot stop myself from welling up because there's so much in me about this. And I, the rage is the one that I think I've worked the hardest to contain in the last three and a half weeks, because I know that my unbridled rage isn't going to be positive in terms of what impact it has. I think that I was talking to friends of mine yesterday. I have this mindfulness, self-compassion circle. Um, And we were talking about all of this and one of my friends in that circle is a law enforcement officer. Oh, wow. And just as you started and you said, you know, the unique thing about you in this dynamic is that your family is friends with Nathaniel's family. And um, I know that there is a lot of blame that is just reactive blame mm-hmm. that happens in the face of these tragedies, because we need some place to vent all of these caustic emotions. And I think with law enforcement too, there is this reactive response to blame law enforcement um, for, and, and I, I recognize that mistakes are made. But what I think we do is we dilute our power when we just blame, you know, focus on the shooter, blame the shooter, dehumanize the shooter, calling him the shooter um, and not using a name. And I'm very sensitive to that because I've worked as a deputy public defender for my entire legal career. And I see it happen so routinely, the dehumanization of offenders because it's a way to compartmentalize mm-hmm. hard things and violent things and tragic things. You know, it's like when we're in court and there are clients of mine that are uh, in custody 
Mm-hmm. You know, you will hear from bailiffs or judges, bring the bodies up, bring the bodies up. Or if it's somebody who's newly arrested and maybe across the street at the police station, where are the fish, the fish, the ones who were recently reeled in? So the whole nomenclature of how we dehumanize individuals I think that what that does is it creates this barrier, this barrier to go beneath the service, to get to the why. Mm -hmm. Why is this happening? Why is this 16 year old child going to school with a ghost gun, Mm -hmm. willing to kill others and then himself? Why? We gotta figure that out. Yes, and I think that that was the question and still remains the question, at least for me, my friends in our community, why? And, and we will never have the answer. And it's insidious because it's taking me two and a half years, Karen, to figure out that having the answer is not going to change necessarily what happened. Um, Initially, I wanted to know why. I wanted to know why him, why these things, why these kids, did he target, what happened, what happened in his world that broke down? Um, Because for me personally, his life mirrored my son's life. They went to the same schools. They were in the same Cub Scout den. They, They lived a similar life. They were in the same classes. And if it can happen to this boy, how do I keep it from happening to my son? That was where my brain was. And that is why I still continue to care about Nathaniel's mother. Because if not for the grace, there go I, because that could have been me. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know what the why is. And that's the hardest thing for me to move forward with, with knowing that I will never have the answer. And, um, I'm still working on it. Uh, I have myself entered therapy. I have myself, um, I have a psychiatrist and a counselor. Mm-hmm. Um, so I will say at least for my journey as a parent, it was helping initially helping my son get through the shock of that week. And I did everything I thought to do. There were, um, sessions from department of county mental health set up at churches. And I took him, he was still in shock. So, but I thought, and he said, I don't need to go to that. I said, well, okay, then they can tell you that you don't need to be here, but we're going. Um, because we were all still in shock. Uh, I got him into, I talked to his pediatrician. I got him into clinical therapy, um, pretty soon after the shooting. Um, and then myself, I also needed recognize that I needed help for myself, not just to support my child, but for myself. And what did that look like for you when you recognized that you yourself needed help to be able to carry on and parent your child who'd gone through this horrific trauma? Um, well, I recognized the power in talk therapy. I've been in therapy before, so I knew that that was a tool that I was going to be using. Um, something they don't tell you when you have a mass shooting in your community is that the community then gets saturated with need 
and the supply of counseling and counselors is diminished, is filled up. Right. So I had to find a counselor and there were none available. Yep. So that's a piece that when I think of all of these communities, because it's not just the people who got shot and it's not just their families and it's not just the friends of the people, it's the entire community, which is so exponential that it, it really, it's hard to grasp how deep and how wide this affects. Um, so I, I turned to an online source. I use BetterHelp. I'm not plugging them in any way, but uh, it was find help where you can find it. Exactly. Um, and so, and, and that was initially what I needed for the talk therapy. How I knew I needed more help, Karen, was I wound up in the emergency room with what I thought was a heart attack and it was severe anxiety. Yeah. And at that point, I uh, reached out to my son's pediatrician who had been helping him through all of his trauma. And she gave me the name of a psychiatrist. So I went and saw her and I am happy to say uh, that things are better. Um, But I needed more help than just talk therapy. So uh, I feel like I explain it how the, the shooting really lowered my ability to handle the pandemic. Mm. My son was diagnosed with clinical depression um, in like April of 2020. Because of the pandemic, all of that therapy he was getting, his coping mechanisms had to do with his creative outlet at school. He's in theater. So when that was taken away, um, it, it just was too much for him. And so luckily he was open to speaking to his doctor. He was open to trying medication. So he is also on medication. Um, it's been a rough game of trying to find the right one and the right dosage, as you know, right? Like right. It's hard. It's hard. Um, and then once he kind of got through that initial dark piece, that's when I kind of fell apart like I held it together until, and, and then the, you. That's yeah. you, you rally until you cannot rally anymore. Exactly. And, and someone will ask like, well, what was the trigger to that anxiety attack? And it was something really stupid and small that I could have easily handled, but it just was too much. And I cracked and wound up. I don't know when it's going to hit. And that's the thing. I think that yeah. you, it's unpredictable when you are so expended emotionally, psychologically, physically, it can be the tiniest thing. I remember going to the pharmacy to pick up Lenny's prescriptions one afternoon. And all of a sudden standing at the register and they're asking me like name, date of birth. Mm-hmm. And I give that information. And all of a sudden I feel it almost like from my toes all the way up. And I just started to cry. Yeah. I just started to cry because it was like, how can my kid who is so young be in such distress that we need all of these medications? And if this is what it's like at 16, I can't imagine what the world is going to do. It's just, it's, it's just, yeah, it can get overwhelming in an instant. 
Yes, it can. But don't you, I'm, I'm guessing that you also pull strength from watching your children and your child specifically get stronger. Absolutely. And that's the thing. That's the wild thing about it is that in those moments of despair, you get lost in your despair. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's about allowing that despair to be felt and released, whether it's by moving the energy through crying, yes. whether it's just ranting, whatever. Yes. And then it's getting shorter and shorter, my window to be able to recognize that this is a moment of suffering and this moment of suffering will pass. Yes. And then I can look back at all of the prior moments of suffering that mm-hmm. we've gotten through and we're still here carrying on. Yeah. And so it's this balance, right? And for me, it is really about allowing myself to feel those really hard, heavy emotions as fully as I possibly can so that I can let it out enough to be able to say, and I made it through that too. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Cause you have to, well, you don't have to, but if you experiencing it fully, both sides. Yeah. The grief and the joy. Yep. Um, and there has been, so, there's current sorrow all over the world. And if all we're going to do is think of the sorrow and the pain. And I think you've talked a little bit about this in your yeah. book. Like you, you have to, you have to get to the point where you can function and you can have both. And that's, and that it's okay to have both because like in the, in the weeks leading up to Zach's graduation, my eldest just graduated from our alma mater, um, Go Tigers! (laughs) you know, last week and for weeks, like after Buffalo happened, I was like not allowing myself to feel excitement and joy to look forward to this milestone because I was so, it's almost like this vicarious trauma, this survivor's guilt, this feeling like all of those people couldn't and will not experience watching their loved one graduate from high school. All of these little kids in Uvalde will never graduate from high school. And I was really in that deep, deep, deep. And then I, I came across this quote about, you know, joy and sadness co- coexist. And it's about holding on to the joy just a little bit tighter. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, you know, where your attention goes, your energy flows. And I'm like, I do at my core believe, I really, really, really do believe that our world there is more good than bad. Yes. But I think we have been conditioned to focus so exclusively on the terror and the hate and the fear and the violence that we see that so readily and so clearly and so pervasively. So for me, it's distilling it down to the tiniest little things, mm-hmm. the tiniest little things that can that I can focus on to find a spot of joy. I was walking, I was hiking with a friend of mine the other day. And as we're walking, 
we're in this very dry, you know, patch, but there are these tiny little flowers that somehow found a way to grow through the crack and blossom. And I'm like, ah, yeah, beautiful. That's it. That's the resilience of the world, right? That is the resilience of the world. Yes. It's, it is the color purple, right? From that, that book and the movie and the play and God made the color purple, like pay attention. There is beauty right there. You can see it. If you look, yeah, it's, um, I think it's necessary. Sometimes it's hard to get there though. And, and, and it's okay. It's okay to be difficult. And I think that's what I've learned most from this experience, Karen, is that you don't know what's going to happen and you don't necessarily know how you're going to handle it, but you will handle it. Mm-hmm. Um, I had these ideas of what Ed would do and what his path was going to be because he's the fourth. He's my baby. I'd been through this college thing before. I'd had kids who graduated college. Like we knew what we were doing. And second semester, junior year for Edwin, I thought, well, I'm not sure he's going to graduate high school. And that's okay. We'll figure it out. I have to say that the resilience of my son and his friends and the community at this high school has been incredible. Um, There are a lot of kids who've been able to move forward through a shooting and a pandemic and trying to figure out life and trying to, and a lot of them have figured out a different path than they thought they were going to have. And I think that's huge. Like it's okay to be different. It's okay to have a different path. It's okay to take a break. Um, That's been wonderful to see. Uh, it's something that my son will live with forever. And it's something that I will live with forever. And it has forever changed us. And I think anyone who has had experienced gun violence at any level, um, they are forever changed. And it's not just gun violence, Karen, you know, it's any trauma, right? It will change you. Uh, but it doesn't have to change you for the worse. It can change you for the better. Or Dr. Schoenfeld, when he addressed us, uh, the parents at Saugus High School in the week, in the weeks after the, the shooting event, um, he said, this is what he hopes to see on these kids. He wants, and the community, you know, there is a baseline that was at seven 30 in the morning on November 14th, 2019. There's a baseline that everybody was at. And then 745, that baseline changed. And most everybody went below the baseline. Like you are just in survival mode. You are in shock. And then as you crawl out of baseline, the goal is to get back to baseline, whatever that is for each individual. He said, but the bigger goal is to go beyond the baseline and to surpass your baseline and take what this experience has done and move past it and move forward. And I, and I'm hoping as a parent, that's what I'm modeling for my kids, all my kids, not just Edwin. Um, All my kids know that I'm in therapy. All my kids know that I'm on medication. And my goal is to provide that 
um, I can't think of the word, <laughs> the model. Yeah. To model that for my kids. Um, and as my kids get older, especially with Edwin, because there's a piece of Edwin that I will never understand now. Not that I will understand any of my kids totally, but, but because of this, there's a piece of him that gives him in some ways a maturity that, uh, I don't quite grasp. And he's got a knowledge that I don't quite grasp because I wasn't there. Mm -hmm. So that for me and that dynamic means I listen more or I try to listen more because I'm sure my, my kids will say, I don't listen enough. (laughs) Let me tell you, let me tell you that listening piece. That is what I have learned going through this journey with Lenny and the, the mental health struggles that we have faced as a family mm-hmm. is that we underestimate the value of just being present and listening. Yes. And sometimes, you know, I, 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 I feel like each day it gets more crystal clear, this whole concept of holding space, yes. because it's not, this is not something that you as a parent can fix. You cannot repair it. You cannot shield your child from their feelings and and their nightmares and the terror of it all. But what you can do and what I find that I can do is in those periods of distress to be with my child in it with no agenda to try to fix it, but to listen and to be there in whatever way I can to allow them, like we were talking about, to process that pain Mm -hmm. and release it in whatever way it comes out. It may just be sitting in silence with neither one saying a single word, but just being there is super powerful and an act of immense love. We can just sit in it and not try to fix it. Yes. Absolutely. I agree. I agree completely. Um, it's a hard thing to do for some of us. Yeah, it is. It is. And it was through a lot of trial and error that I really got better at it because I was like, I would catch myself. I'm like, Oh no, 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 don't, don't, don't say that. Don't give that little nugget of advice or wisdom. Just be just yeah. be. Yes. Um, and I think too, for me, I wake up in the mornings and think to myself, okay, all right, try again. Mm-hmm. Maybe you didn't get it right yesterday, or maybe you could do better. So, okay, you're just try again and you're just going to keep trying. Um, that's what I want. And that's what I hope. And kind of bringing it back to the sandwich piece uh, is that with my mom too, it's that listening It's the being respectful of her view or how she wants it. Um, There was a time and I would just go in and I still kind of do this, but I'll go into her house and think, oh, it should be like this. Right. Um, Because that's what makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. But that it's turning to mom and saying, do you like it like this? Do you you have an opinion on how this should be? Uh, Very difficult. I feel that so (laughs) difficult. Yesterday I took, I took my dad to a neurology appointment and I see in myself the tendency to talk for him. 
Yes. So that the neurologist comes in. So how have things been? And instead of just like sitting back and waiting for my, because sometimes with the Parkinson's, finding words for my dad is hard. And there are sometimes long pauses before he will respond. And so the tendency is for me to jump in and fill in and, you know, and again, it's one of those things that I think I am getting better at every single time I take him because of my own awareness that I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. And now that I'm really aware that it's something that I do, I want to support his independence and his ability to express himself and not trample that. And so I dialed it down yesterday. I was very proud of myself. Good for and you. In fact, the doctor asked a question and I said, dad, you know, inviting him to answer. Cause I think he's also used to us just answering and steamrolling him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They are used to it. So, but I, I love that. Like dad, what do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, and it's that invitation, like, I'm not going to speak. I'm going to let you speak. Right. <laughs> I'm letting you know. <laughs> right. I think all in all, you know, and that kind of ties back in for me to what we were talking about, you know, in terms of each individual's humanity. Um, we are all with the most horrific things that happen in this world at our core. We share that common humanity. And I do feel really strongly about acknowledging it. I think that that piece that you said in terms of continuing to relate and support Nathaniel's mom, you know, is a big part of it because I can see how alienated and ostracized and shunned that her existence must be in many ways. And when we are able to find that piece of common humanity and relate from that foundation, then I think we make a better world. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. I, I am so grateful to you, Joelle, for talking with me about this and sharing your journey and your optimism. I think that that is really... I. I do believe that, you know, I want to skew towards post-traumatic growth instead of, you know, post-traumatic stress. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, my friend. It's been, uh, it's been really illuminating to actually see you and talk to you after having just listened to you. Um, it's been wonderful. I'm, I'm really glad that we could connect like this. Uh, and thank you. Absolutely. And next time you come down, we'll do it in real life. Perfect. Sounds good. <laughs> All right, my friend, have a really, really great rest of your day. You too. Enjoy. It brings you joy. Thank you. And you also, and enjoy those kiddos this summer. Cause this, I hate to say this, but this is like the last summer of normalcy for you. In the next segment of our conversation, Joelle shares with me some advice on sending my firstborn to college. But one thing I wanted to add was in our subsequent communications, one thing Joelle said is very, very important, and I wholeheartedly agree, is that make sure your children know important telephone numbers by heart. One thing that happened in her experience is that kids couldn't access their telephones. And then if they didn't know the numbers by heart, 
couldn't contact their families to let them know that they were okay. So please, whatever you do, make sure you have your kids memorize those important numbers so in any emergency, in any situation like this, like a school shooting or other frightening experience, that your kids have the ability to call you on someone else's phone if they can't access the contacts in their own phone. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll take a moment today to squeeze your kids a little tighter and make sure they know these tips just in case. I'm Karen Osborne. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this very important conversation. For the resources that Joelle mentioned, please check the show notes and you'll find links there. You can follow me on Instagram at karen.e.osborne, that's O-S-B-O-R-N-E. Or if you want to become an insider, a Club Sandwich member, click the link in my bio and join my private Facebook group. Until next time, remember to add yourself to your caregiving list and take a moment today and do something that brings you joy.